You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. In 1878, Thomas Edison began what would become hundreds of experiments in his quest to perfect the incandescent light bulb. And finally, at the end of 1879, he was ready to file a patent for his design, and he entered the next phase of his work, which was making these incandescent light bulbs more widely available. There was no way to mass produce them at the time, and so each light bulb had to be put together by hand, which took 24 hours for every single light bulb. And the story goes that as they put together their first light bulb, spent 24 hours carefully putting it together, Thomas Edison looked around the room at all of his lab assistants to determine who would have the honor of carrying it up the stairs and placing it in a vacuum-sealed tube for transport. And he picked a young boy who was a lab assistant to carry it up the stairs, and the boy very carefully, staring at his hands the whole time to ensure that he didn't drop it, started up the stairwell. Unfortunately, by staring at his hands, he was unable to look at his feet, and he missed the top stair, tripping, dropping the bulb, shattering it everywhere. You can imagine the deflation in the basement as their careful creation crashed to the floor. And the team started over, and 24 hours later, they had their second light bulb, and Edison looked around the room again to determine who would have the honor of carrying their second light bulb up the stairs, and the story goes that he chose the same boy. I remember hearing this story when I was a kid. It was told by preachers and Sunday school teachers to illustrate what second chances look like, what grace looks like. The problem is it's probably not true. It's most likely an urban legend. I went looking for stories of second chances as I was preparing this week, i.e. I googled them. And aside from second chances at love, this story popped up most often, almost exclusively as a sermon illustration. And maybe this says something about the scarcity of second chances that our most repeated illustration is a fabrication. It's made up. Maybe also says something about preachers, but that's a topic for another day. Second chances are rare. We all want to receive second chances, but we're reluctant to extend them. Maybe because, as former President Bush said, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, you can't fool me again, is the point. We don't want to be fooled again. We don't want to be taken advantage of again. We don't want our trust to be broken again. And so second chances are rare. Maybe we can understand a second chance for a minor screw-up, a minor mistake, but Peter had failed miserably and publicly and spectacularly. In typical Peter fashion, he had made a big, bold promise. Even if everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And then... Jesus is arrested, just as Jesus predicted. And then all the disciples desert him, just as Jesus predicted. Except Peter. Peter follows. At a distance, but he's still there. And then, when confronted, he denies even knowing Jesus. 
three times, just as Jesus predicted. If this had been the first time that Peter messed up, maybe we can understand the second chance Jesus is extending him in this passage. But this had been a pattern for Peter, promising more than he could produce over and over again. And this was the big one. This was a spectacular failure. Is there any coming back from this? I wonder what was going through the disciples' minds as they ate breakfast on the lake shore with Jesus. I mean, there is a massive elephant in the room or on the shore. How will it be addressed? I mean, they're amazed that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's something they're still trying to wrap their minds around. You even see it in the previous verses where no one dares to ask, is it really you, Jesus? Because it's so unbelievable that he's there because they saw him die. They know he was dead. But also, where does Peter stand in all of this? He'd been the leader of this band of disciples. Jesus had entrusted him with the keys of the kingdom. Upon this rock, I will build my church. What now? Jesus begins by addressing Peter in a very formal way. Simon, son of John. There's no affectionate nickname, no Peter, no Rocky. Simon, son of John. It's his full name. And as a kid, you know when your full name is used by your parents, things are about to get real serious. If the disciples were anything like the typical middle school classroom, right now they're like, oh, he's in trouble. But rather than a reprimand, Jesus asks a question, not just once, but three times. The same question each time. And sometimes, which is really important and impactful, but sometimes I think we can lose the importance of the actual question and the impact of the repetition because Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Do you love me? Do you love me? He's communicating to Peter in this moment that your identity is centered on Jesus, not on your past, including your past failure. This is the gospel you are not defined by your worst moment. You are not defined by your worst failure, no matter how spectacular it might have been. You are defined by your relationship with Jesus. Do you love me? Notice, though, that Peter's past does need to be confronted. He can probably see where this is going after Jesus asks him the same question the second time. And by the third time, verse 17 says, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the question a third time. He knows this is about his denial, even though Jesus doesn't specifically bring it up. And while it's hurtful, it's also healing. See, Jesus is confronting Peter with his failure, not to shame him, not to hurt him, but to give Peter the opportunity to reaffirm totally and completely everything that he had previously denied. It's hurtful, but healing. Jesus wants the same for you today. He's not just going to sweep your failure under the rug. He's not just going to pretend it didn't happen. He's not going to keep it in his back pocket and bring it out whenever he thinks you're getting too big for yourself to remind you who you really are or what you've really done. He's going to shine light on it. And he wants to restore you, to give you the opportunity to reaffirm totally and completely everything that you have denied by your attitude, your actions, your words, your ambitions. And then it's done. That's grace. That's the gospel. 
It's the second chance. Even the way Jesus asked Peter the question the first time shines light on Peter's problem. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember Peter's promise? Even if everyone else, even if all these other people desert you, I never will. See, Peter's problem wasn't just that he had denied Jesus. Peter's problem was pride. Compared to these others, I am so good. I am so strong. I am so mature. I am so wise. I am better than them. Jesus asked, do you really love me more than these do? Are you really more committed than they are? And this time, Peter only speaks for himself. You know I love you. He doesn't compare himself to anybody else. He doesn't contrast himself against anybody else. Again, it's hurtful, but not for the sake of causing pain, but for the purpose of restoring Peter. Your identity is centered on Jesus, not on your past, including your past failure or your past success. See, just before this conversation, the disciples had gone fishing. And they caught a massive amount of fish all at one time. So many that they couldn't even haul in the net. Someone in this encounter took the time to count the fish. It's right there in verse 11, 153. I wonder how they argued about that. You know, like, I think it was 150. No, 153. And not just any fish, 153 large fish. This was a massive, spectacular success in their business. Success perhaps only rivaled by the, t- the haul they had took in the first time they had gone fishing under Jesus' instructions. But Jesus doesn't ask Peter about his success. How many fish did you catch? Nope. Do you love me. Your identity is centered on Jesus, not on your past. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's affirmation. Jesus doesn't respond with a pat on the back and a, okay, we're all good then. No, he responds with a commission, a job, not as a way to earn forgiveness or restoration, but as an opportunity for Peter to express his love for Jesus in a tangible way and to express his joy at being restored in his relationship with Jesus. And there's a further communication. Jesus is communicating to Peter and to all the disciples who are in earshot that Peter has been fully restored. He doesn't relegate Peter to the back benches. It's good that you love me, but you failed spectacularly, so I'm going to have to demote you. Now feed my sheep. Lead, care for, shepherd my sheep. It's like handing the fictional light bulb to the fictional boy again, but even better because this really happened. Jesus really did this. And so the promise is that it's also available to you because of Jesus. And it's even better than handing the light bulb to the fictional boy because Jesus not only restores Peter, gives him a second chance, he actually kind of promotes Peter. Jesus is now sharing his own work and ministry with him. In the Old Testament, God was the shepherd who cared for his people. In the Gospels, Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his people. Here, he commissions Peter as a co-shepherd with him. Feed my sheep. 
He gives us the same invitation to partner with him, to join him in ministry. And I know that we tend to think as ministry as being a vocational pastor or an overseas missionary or something like that. And when we think in those terms, it's easy to excuse ourselves. I'm not called to that, therefore I don't have a ministry. The story of the Bible is that we are all ministers in God's economy. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Paul writes, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So that we can do the things that he originally created us to do. To tend creation, including our fellow human beings, one another. To tend creation under God's authority and to reflect God's glory to all of creation, again, including to our fellow human beings. This is ministry. Each one of us is called to ministry. And within the body of Christ, it's even more clear that we're all responsible for the functioning and flourishing of God's family. That's ministry. We'll explore that more fully next week. Jesus is communicating that your ministry is centered on Jesus, not on your proficiency. Did you notice the job interview that Peter had to go through to get this ministry? One question. Three times, but one question. Do you love me? Yes. You got the job. Jesus doesn't ask about Peter's leadership abilities, his strengths and weaknesses, his preaching proficiency, his 90-day or his five-year plan. No, do you love me? Feed my sheep. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his commentary. Here, this question is the secret of all Christian ministry, yours and mine, lay and ordained, full-time or part-time. If you are going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Do you love me? Do you love me? Your identity is centered on Jesus, not on your past. Your ministry is centered on Jesus, not on your proficiency. And third, your destiny is centered on Jesus, not on your plans. After Jesus commissions Peter for ministry, he gives him a glimpse of where it will all end. Verse 18. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Essentially, Jesus is telling Peter this call to ministry is also a call to die. If you accept this call, it will end with your arrest and your execution by crucifixion. And then he says, follow me. Again, there's incredible grace in, this, in these words. There's the gospel encapsulated in these words. These are the words that Jesus first used to invite Peter to participate in his mission three or so years earlier. It's almost like Jesus is saying, nothing has changed. You get another second chance. The invitation is the same now as it was then. Follow me. It's the same invitation that's extended to you today. Follow me. 
Don't get distracted by your past failures, your successes, your potential, or your strengths and your weaknesses. Do you love me? Follow me. Don't get distracted by all of the theological and social and political and economic debates and issues. Do you love me? Follow me. Don't get distracted by all of the opportunities and activities and anxieties that surround you. The worries of this life and the lure of wealth and opportunity will choke out your spiritual life. There are so many things that look good, so many things that look like golden opportunities that we just have to take advantage of and that we just can't pass up that are actually designed to lure your heart away from your first love and to distract you from being Jesus-centered and people-focused. There are some things that seem just like common sense, things that you feel like you have to do before you can follow Jesus. Once I have enough money saved up, then I'll follow Jesus. Once I've taken care of my family, then I'll follow Jesus. Once I've gotten married, then I'll follow Jesus. Once my kids have moved out, once whatever it is. And this isn't new. This has been going on since Jesus walked the earth. In Luke's record of Jesus' life, Jesus extends the invitation to an unnamed man, probably so that each one of us can hear it, follow me. Yes, Lord, but first let me go bury my dad. No, let the dead bury their dead, Jesus says. You follow me. Another asks to go and say goodbye to his family first, and Jesus responds in a parable that communicates, don't get distracted. In fact, if anything is threatening to distract you, burn it up so it won't distract you again. Follow me. Jesus has always made it clear that accepting this invitation to follow him will be costly. Peter knew that. He'd left a fishing business He'd left his wife, his family, his home to follow Jesus. In fact, at one point in their travels, Peter says to Jesus, look, we've given up everything to follow you. And you can hear the underlying question, can't you? What else are you going to ask for? What else do we have to give? And here Jesus answers that question. You'll have to give up your autonomy, your independence, your freedom and submit it to others. They will lead you places you don't want to go. They will bind you. Ultimately, they will crucify you. They'll kill you. Follow me. Jesus is communicating that your destiny is centered on Jesus, not on your plans. The same is true for every single one of us. No, we probably won't get arrested for following Jesus. We're not likely to be executed for being Jesus-centered. But Jesus tells us clearly that following him means saying no to your self-centered ambitions, dreams, goals, plans, and desires. That following him means taking up your cross, usually metaphorically, for Peter, actually, But for most of us, metaphorically, living a sacrificial life of service because your destiny is centered on Jesus, not on your plans. 
And just in case we don't get the metaphor of what it means to carry the cross, Jesus explains, if you're self-centered, you'll end up losing. But if you're Jesus-centered, you'll gain true life. And this means being Jesus-centered means not striving to be at the top, not striving to be number one, not striving to be the best or the most important, not demanding that people orient their lives and their schedules to fit yours, not demanding your own rights and freedoms, not pursuing your own goals and ambitions, but giving everything to serve others, to be people-focused. Not people-focused to see how much they got compared to what you have or to see how much they've been asked to give up compared to what you've been asked to give up. Louis C.K., who I only like this one statement from, says this in his, uh, in his comedy series, the only time you look into your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You don't look into your neighbor's bull to see if you have as much as them. Peter needs to learn this lesson. Verse 20, Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. Verse 21, or yeah, verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? I love Peter. He's so relatable. Get the sense in this moment that he's just overcome with emotion. He's overcome with the intensity of the moment and the message that Jesus has just told him and he feels like he needs to release the pressure. He needs to say something, anything. And he kind of looks around, he's like, oh, thank goodness, there's somebody there. What about him, Jesus? Peter had a habit of this. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus took him and James and John up a mountainside where Jesus is transfigured. All of Jesus' greatness and majesty is on full display for those three disciples. And then Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking with Jesus. It's incredible and kind of weird. These guys are dead. And yet there they are on the mountainside with Jesus. And it's completely overwhelming. And Peter feels like he has to say something, anything, And he blurts out some words, and Mark, Jesus' biographer, inserts an editorial comment. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say. I can relate to that, right? So relatable. Maybe that's what's going on here. Or maybe Peter's trying to peek into someone else's bull to see if they have to give up as much as Jesus has asked him to give up. And Jesus shuts him down. What's that to you? You follow me. However Jesus might deal with the other disciples, whatever Jesus might ask them to sacrifice, Peter has to decide if he's willing to pay the cost Jesus is asking him to pay. You follow me. Your destiny is centered on Jesus. Not on your plans. Not on the plans or the expectations others may have for you, including your parents. Not on the path that others may be called to you. Your destiny is centered on Jesus. You follow me. So this is the call for each one of us today. Will you follow Jesus? Will you respond to all Jesus is and all that Jesus offers with a faith faith that says, wherever you go, I will follow? It's the question you need to answer. Will you follow Jesus? And if you're hesitant, you need to examine your heart. What's holding you back? Is it your past? 
Are you worried that your failures disqualified you? Are you worried that your worst moments define you? Remember, your identity is centered on Jesus, not on your past. Yes, he wants to acknowledge your past. He wants you to acknowledge it to him, not to hurt you, but to heal you. And so if you're ready to bring your past to the light, bring it to Jesus, confess it to him, and let him restore you, I invite you as we close our time together to come to the front, pray with one of the prayer team members, or pray with a pastor, or wait till after the service to do it as well, but, but bring it to the light so that Jesus can heal you and restore you, and so you can know it's not kept in Jesus' back pocket to bring out against you at any point in time. Maybe you're hesitant because of your weakness. You're worried that you have nothing to offer to Jesus. Your list of strengths and abilities is way too short, and your list of weaknesses is way too long. Remember, your ministry is centered on Jesus, not on your proficiency. The only interview question for participation in Jesus' mission is, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. One of my favorite stories in scripture, and I have lots of favorite stories in scripture, but one of them is where Jesus feeds 5,000 people plus women and children, 5,000 men plus women and children. They're in the middle of the desert. They've been there all day and they're getting hungry. And a little boy has five loaves of bread and two fish. And I wonder if the little boy felt like I do often, like, it's all I got. It's not enough. I got nothing. But this little boy brings them to Jesus, and it is enough to feed everybody when Jesus takes it. So if you're ready to bring whatever you have to Jesus, no matter how little you think it is, let him use it and multiply it for his mission, then I invite you again to just come and pray with the prayer team or one of the pastors as we close our service and offer it to him. And then stand back and see what he does with it. Maybe it, you're hesitant because you have plans. Your ambition is getting in the way. You're afraid of what Jesus will ask you to give up, what Jesus will demand from you in order to follow him. You're not sure that you, can take, that you can trust Jesus to take care of you and provide for you. You're, in fact, pretty sure that you can do a better job than Jesus can. Your destiny is centered on Jesus, not on your plans. The Bible says that just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's plans higher than your plans. And God promises that his plan for you, his ultimate plan for you, is to give you a future filled with hope. And he makes it clear. The way to that future filled with hope is the way of the cross. It's the way of sacrifice, submission, and service. But if you share in that pathway, you will share in his resurrection and his glory. But to get there, you have to let go of your ambitions and plans. You must remove you and your self-centered dreams and desires from the center, Jesus-centered, people-focused. So if you're ready to come and bring your ambitions and dreams and plans to Jesus, come and pray with the prayer team as we wrap up our time together. 
Maybe you're ready to declare this publicly. You're ready to say, I want to follow Jesus. He is my Lord. I submit it all to him. We have a baptismal service planned for next Sunday. And if you would like to be included in that, we would love to celebrate that step of faith and obedience and surrender with you. So you come and talk to any of the pastoral staff or go to the info desk after the service. And we will work with you to make sure you're ready for that service next Sunday. I'm going to call the prayer team forward and the worship team to come on up at this point in time. And as they're coming up, I want us to close our, my time with you by reminding ourselves that being Jesus-centered and others-focused is really just a summary of the greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to recite together what is known as the Jesus Creed. It comes from the Shema, which is the, one of the most important recitations in, in Jewish faith. But Jesus adds to it and makes it his own. And so I, want, I invite you to stand now with me, and we'll make this our prayer as we close the sermon. Let's say it together. Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Follow me. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.